Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Adam Borneman. He is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church of USA and currently serves as program director for Macedonian Ministry, which provides diverse peer learning groups for pastors in communities all across the United States and Scotland. I give you Adam Borneman. Adam, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thanks, brother. Good to be back. This is one of the few times I'm recording a podcast where the place I'm recording is is not as quiet as the guests. Usually it really doesn't work that way, but today it's working that way. Well, let's hope we've got a good soundtrack in the background. Exactly. I'm here in downtown Philadelphia. I found a local little spot to record in because I had an appointment downtown, but the show must go on. This, this could, in fact, not be the exception. This could be a whole new way of doing this. I like it already. Behold, the Lord makes all <laughs> things new. No, that's not the passage. The passage is I'm doing a new doing thing. a new thing. So here we go. We got Isaiah 43 for our first passage, verses 16 through 21. The Lord saying, Who makes a way in the sea a path in the mighty waters? Who brings out the chariot and the horse? He rehearses the Egyptian deliverance. Yeah. Uh and then it's interesting because he says, don't remember the former things uh, or consider things of old. He's going to do a new thing, and now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? He'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. It's interesting. Here he's sort of rehearsing the golden age of Israel, right? I mean, this is uh, you know Israel's redemption story, which is in some ways their, Israel's creation story as well, right? The Exodus. So this is the thing that's memorialized at the center of Israel's story. And the Lord, through the prophet, whichever Isaiah it may be, says, I don't know, like, don't even think of that. Because what I'm going to do next is going to blow your mind. Yeah, I mean, and I think that with, you know, verse 18, remember not the former things, I, I think it's specifically having to do with um, just the the suffering and the perseverance that's involved. I, I, you know, I I think we also have to be careful not to say that it's not it's not to forget God's faithfulness. You know, this sort of narrative shows up all over the place in the Psalms and it says the exact opposite, right? I mean, the whole thing is about remembering how God delivered them. Um, so, yeah, I'm intrigued by what it means by remember not the former things or consider the things of old. But I, I doubt that it means forget how I was faithful to you. Um, but maybe it means not to dwell on those things and you know, not to be bogged down in them because the next verse, of course, is, behold, I'm doing a new thing. That's the contrast is don't get so bogged down in what has been that you can't be open to the surprising um, thing that I'm doing now. No, maybe it's like saying, hey, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Of course, you know, I looked at the passage just this week, and every time I see that, behold, I'm doing a new thing, it induces one of the most massive eye rolls I could possibly muster, only because that whole that phrase gets used for everybody's new pet project, right? I mean, anytime someone's got an agenda in the church to change things, they go back to Isaiah 43:19, and probably need to do a little bit deeper exegesis of behold i'm doing a new thing was it uh who was it dc talk who, who had a song yeah, about i think this? dc talk or one of those christian groups had something like that 
God is doing a new thing. <laughs> you really need to play that track on this podcast or no one's going to get it. It's interesting. Uh, Elizabeth Ochtemeyer, you know, the great Presbyterian Bible scholar from Union Seminary. I think she's of blessed memory. Says, uh, we are never to forget God's redemption of us by the cross and resurrection any more than Israel was ever to forget her redemption in the Exodus. But like Israel, we also know that God presses on in his purpose and that there are yet new acts that will come forth from the love and might revealed to us in Jesus Christ. God is not done with our lives until his kingdom comes. Therefore, we wait for him and upon him in prayer and Bible study and worship and obedience. Then we can soar and run and walk good Christians and never fail, fall or faint. So that's interesting. I mean, I think they're sort of like, I think you're right. It is the former things of the exile, but it's also saying like, I think saying that that uh, the Jonathan Edwards preached his this first sermon at age eighteen had like three points basically he said when you're a Christian know that uh, anything bad in your life can be redeemed for the good all the good things are only better only get better in, in in the hope of glory and the best is yet to come he also said grace is but glory begun glory is but grace perfected I like that wow give us a few more quotes this is good <laughs> I don't have the <laughs> Or, or, or for Isaiah forty three, just you know, we could just read uh, the Octomire stuff and, and let it be exactly. done. That's really good. You know, the other the other thing here is, I it would be good to sit down and kind of outline the structure of the passage because there is some poetic device here. You know, if you start in sixteen and who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, and you get down to uh, after, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Towards the end of verse nineteen, I'll make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So maybe the new thing is. You don't expect for there to be a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, but that's exactly what I can yeah. and will do. So it's not, it's so it's so far away from, hey, we're going to try a new thing, and look, God says He's doing a new thing. So I think you have to really put in the context of what God is actually promising here. And really, it's not so much about our agendas or our initiative, but I think the key to Isaiah forty three, when God says, "Behold, I'm doing a new thing," really what that's about is, are we? radically open to whatever God is going to do. You know, it's not really what we think the new thing is. And maybe God's new thing is not what we want it to be. Well, and also the, the um, thing but, might look less glorious and be more glorious. I mean, you think that this is the road to exactly to the Christ event, right? And yet it looks probably less, when you're thinking, I'm going to do a new thing. Oh, it's going to be bigger than the Exodus, bigger than the Davidic kingdom. It will and it won't be. I mean, it will be bigger, but it won't look bigger. I mean, it will be more powerful, but it'll look weaker. It'll be more significant, but it'll look less significant. So, I mean, that that in some ways, the new thing, uh, if you were fixated on the things of old as as the standard here in Israel's case, you might not, you might miss the way that this is a segue to, I mean, because, you know, the return to the land is never going to be the the thing of 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 Israel's memory, you know, at least in its own mind, especially. But it will be in some, in many ways, it, the the thing that will make is Abraham not just the father of Israel, but all the nations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so maybe I'm being a little, I'm giving myself too much liberty with this, but it's almost as if to say, why don't you go ahead and forget what you thought you knew about me? I, I think that's what you thought this was all about. Why don't you forget that and um, and again, he repeats, you know, I'll give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And it's exactly what you said. All these promises about the nations, about the land, it's actually so much bigger than you thought it was. And I think you're going to struggle with that. So, yeah, once you start going down that path with what new thing might mean there, it does make some of the ways we usually talk about it seem a little short-sighted. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where, where the new thing is always, I mean, 
we know it's God's new thing by its continuity with the the re- redemptive history, and yet it's not just reproducing it. Yeah, and it's and what's so um, what's so tricky about that is it's in continuity with a history that we didn't fully grasp in the first place. So you know, it's easy for us yeah. to talk about continuity and say. Oh, well, look, well, we understood it to be this way, and now look, there's more continuity with that. But actually, God's continuity turns out to be not what we were thinking in the first place. It's it's beautifully uh, disruptive, actually. I mean, it really is kind of this – it's a, it's revelation, right? I mean, it's this dialectic of revelation that it comes to us and disrupts us in ways that kind of enlighten us. And now we look back and say, oh, that's what was going on all along, and we didn't have the eyes or the hearts to perceive it. So that's the openness to the new thing is being willing to accept that possibility. Yeah, this is, you know, I think Aristotle and the poetics is something like, you know, the a good story is one where the climactic events that, that think there are things that you couldn't see coming. And yet when you, when they happen, you're like, Oh, it couldn't have happened any other way. Whereas when we find a story frustrating or a serial drama, it's, it's either it's too predictable or it goes a direction that seems to scrap the rest of the story. Right. Like, but but the real real good stories are ones where you can't see the next thing, and yet when it happens, you're like, it couldn't have been any other way. Yeah, you know, it reminds me. What's the um, really famous quote from Dostoevsky? I want. Is it at the end of Brothers Karamazov or the um, or kind of for Americans or the really any famous quotes from Dostoevsky? If you're American, <laughs> that's right. But there there is this really kind of unsettling quote about in the end it all being worth it, like yeah. all the injustice yeah. and the poverty. And um, I know that that's been overused, and I'm not particularly insightful for drawing that out, but it does remind me of that, that, you know, I read that quote and I think, well, this is a load of bull. And and I think actually that's kind of convicting that I need to actually sit with that possibility that all the things that we have interpreted a certain way, really interpret in light of what Jesus has done on the cross, you know, his cross death and resurrection needs to be reinterpreted. Our whole notion of continuity of God needs to be reinterpreted. And that maybe that is the new thing. It's openness to that possibility. Won't you stand with me right now and say, you know, he's doing it. God is doing a new thing, you know he's doing it. God is doing a new thing, you know he's doing it. Who's doing it? God is doing a new uh, thing, you know, you know he's doing it. Yo, who's doing it? God is doing a new thing. So on to Philippians, the third chapter, verses 4b through 14, because A must not be in there. Uh, it, Oh my gosh, stuff like that in lectionary dress. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, Paul says, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, and so forth and so forth. Yeah, he says, whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as loss because of Christ. Regarding everything as a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And then he talks about his own sufferings and this, you know, connection to Christ and his own sufferings. And his concluding with this, you know, he's not that he's already obtained his destiny, but that he's pressing on towards the goal, straining forward. Yeah, I love this passage. And, you know, of course, you know, it's been the subject of so much uh, debate over the years about what, what is righteousness and that sort of thing. So, you know, you have someone like N.T. Wright who talks about, well, righteousness here really means covenant membership and the law is referring to specific Jewish practices. Um, and, and that may be. Um, what do you think about that, Scott? How do you, how do you take that, that language of righteousness and law? And if you could sum up your view on that in about 18 seconds. <laughs> uh, the, the righteousness is like, well, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I want to make a false disjuncture between, I understand what 
uh, you know, N.T. Wright is saying that on one level, the righteousness of God is God's faithfulness to his covenant kind of thing, God's faithfulness to himself and his own triumph. And then, but yet there's a sense in which the way that, you know, clothed in Christ's righteousness, I, I don't think those are mutually exclusive, this idea that, that God's own saving faithfulness in the world comes personally to us in a way that cloaks us in the righteousness of Christ. So I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to play this off each other. I'm both hand on this point. Yeah, I agree. There's a gr- that's a good safe place to be. Um, but I actually think you're right too. You know, there's a great, there's a great couple lines from Carl Bart on this passage that I want to share. Um, he's talking about this turn that Paul makes and he's trying to, He's trying to clarify the the radical departure that Paul is making, um, and, he, and he frames it in terms of repentance. It says that you know here for Paul does not mean to be liberalized, to become indifferent to what we were, to the former objects of our devotion, the former conduct of our lives, but to be horrified by it. So it's not realizing we're not realizing that it means nothing, but that it means evil. He says Spinoza does not become a reformer; Luther does. The Pharisee Gamaliel Liel does not become an apostle, but the Pharisee Saul does. The heights on which I stood are abysmal. The assurance in which I lived is lostness. The light I had, darkness, it is not that nil takes place of the plus, but the plus itself changes to a minus. Um, I really like that because I do think it captures the that for Paul this radical departure that this was, and that it really can be explained in no other way except for the revelation of God in Christ. Um, I think it's easy for us to read this stuff and, and again, turn it into a sort of a historical exercise or contextual or trying to understand all the finer points of the law and um, being blameless and being in the tribe of Benjamin. But I think Bart's right to make the point that really this is about a, a radical encounter with the risen Christ and that it costs Paul a lot. And um, that, that to me is, where the conviction lies um, is the is the cost and the the radical departure that it is from his former way. Yeah, I think that it's interesting that you know there's a guy uh, Paulson who wrote a book called uh, his name is Stephen Paulson wrote a book called Lutheran Theology and it's sort of a you know it's it's this sort of radical Lutheran approach to theology, which some people will have an objection to, which is fine. I mean, it, it is a little one-sided, but I like it. Uh, he says, Lutheran theology begins perversely by advocating the destruction of all that is good, right, and beautiful in human life. It attacks the lowest and the highest goals of life, especially morality, no matter how sincere are its practitioners. Uh, and then he goes on to say, uh, uh, the first task, uh, or he says, no, this nor is this radical attack is nor is this radical attack merely a warning like Socrates not to practice morality to impress others, but to adhere to virtue and wisdom with the true feeling of the heart, come what may, even unjust death by legal means. Lutheran theology begins not as an attack on our lack of knowledge of the good. It's attacking the good itself, along with the hearts of righteous people who prove themselves to be wise become fools. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and he, so who, he who, talks, who's that quote from? Who's that from? Uh, Stephen Paulson. Yeah, he says. Yeah, I, I wonder. He says this. I wonder. He says this is already no ordinary philosophy about life, nor is it ordinary Christian religion. For thousands of years, Christians routinely described life using an allegory of the Hebrew Exodus from Egypt. They said life in general, and Christians in particular, were an exodus out of vice and into virtue. They were on a journey away from badness toward goodness. But Luther bluntly said, "Faith is not a transition from vice to virtue; it is the way from to the grace of Christ." Oh my gosh! Yeah. Uh, well, I won't go too far on a tangent. I, I mean, obviously some false dichotomies there. It's interesting, you know, some of the the uh, newer radical Lutheran stuff, um, Gerhard Ferdy, who a lot of people like, and, and I generally do too, but sometimes I think that the implications get way out of control. <laughs> I don't think Luther ever said anything like, 
you know, condemning virtue or human goodness or something like that. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't think Paul's saying that either. I mean, I think that's, that's why you can have the both end with, um, you know, uh, all the debates over a new perspective on Paul and stuff like that. I, sometimes I think that's also but it does a little seem bit like Paul's speaking in that it's, it's not that there's no good, nothing about virtue or human goodness that's of any value, but in relation to Christ, it does. The oh yeah. No, I think that's right. Different. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. It, it does. Um, it is a radical disruption, and it, and it does. It's, it's not a zero sum equation. I mean, it is the in fact. Maybe my Lutheran friends will appreciate me saying this, but it really is sort of the annihilation of um, of relying on those other good things. I mean, that's the contrast. I think Jesus does that a, a few times too. Actually, draws that contrast. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, we could talk a lot about those Lutheran interpretations. It's quite a paragraph there from Paul saying. <laughs> It's interesting, too, because I think if I was going to preach on this text, which I don't think I'm going to, because I'm preaching on the gospel, I think, but yeah. but I do think the thing that's most pre- preachable here is this whole section where Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on, I press on. Uh, so you have this sense in which I think like guilt and anxiety, right, are two of the things that plague all of us at different times in our life. And guilt is usually you know, as it was always over past things, right? And anxiety is generally over future things. Although they can be related. I think our guilt can make us anxious, but it's usually are projecting onto the future kind of thing. And Paul here deals with these, right? He's, what God has done for him in Christ is dealt with forgetting what lies behind. That God, God has absolved his guilt. I mean, has, has made him a new creation. And straining forward to it lies ahead. He's not shrieking back from it. Like, he's not anxious about it. I press his orientation, he can be present where he is because of what God has done about with his past and assured him about the future. But yet also he says, I, you know, I, but I haven't obtained it, you know, or I'm not yet perfect. It's, it's always through a glass darkly. So it's always, you know, learning these lessons again and again, right? We have to continually repeat and have represented to us how our guilt is dealt with in Christ, our future is assured in his resurrection life. But when those, as we, as we receive those realities that, that we can really be present. Yeah. And I think that that's true. Um, and we have a hard time with that, even psychologically living in the present. I was doing a little bit of research on that recently, but, but I also think it's important here that the idea of leaving things behind, you know, what is he referring to? And I think he's referring to all the, right. all the badges he was wearing, um, is righteous and blameless and all the credibility he had, all the accolades, um, all the identity he had built up for himself. I think that's what he's leaving behind. It makes me think too about that Isaiah 43 passage. I mean, maybe, maybe there's something to that is leaving behind the identity you thought you had from being delivered uh, from Egypt. That that really isn't all there is to this. There's more to this. and that, that These things should be counted as rubbish, rub, um, rubbish in comparison to Christ. And so it's a, it's a, what strikes me is that repentance here is a total reorientation. I mean, it's kind of a turning from what used to matter to what really matters, so much so that what used to matter doesn't matter at all anymore. And like Bart says, that not only does it not matter, it's not neutral, um, that it's it's darkness, uh, it's negative, it's less than. Um, I never put those two passages together in that way, but actually that, that makes sense because I don't think it's a matter of – Paul here is, is never going to say – Let's forget about God's faithfulness. I mean, he builds huge arguments on how faithful God has been, you know, to the to the faith of Abraham and others. But I think Paul would also say, you know, God's been faithful to us by the faith of Abraham and by those promises. And yet those are not the things that make us who we are. God is who is what makes us who we are, not our 
covenant membership, not our righteousness, not our adherence to the law. And there's a wonderful continuity between Paul and Jesus. Speaking of Jesus. What a great segue. A great segue. That? Man, he's a franchise player, You're welcome. this guy. So here we have John, the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. And ah. six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I just, I love that, whom he'd raised from the dead. It's, 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 yeah, by the way. It's supposed yeah. to have Lazarus, you know, that jerk-off <laughs> that worked for Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Uh, you know, not, not that, that guy. guy. We, hate that, we guy. hate that guy. This is Lazarus, whom Jesus, you know, he stinketh. Uh, <laughs> then they then they gave a dinner for him. Then they gave a dinner. Least we could do. He raised Lazarus. Least he could, we could do. Uh, Martha served. In case you forgot. And Lazarus is one of those tables. And then Mary takes this pound of costly perfume and anoints you know his feet. And then Judas is like, Hey, we could have you know sold this and give this to the poor. Uh, I love the editorial. It's like not because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. <laughs> That's a good point. Do liberals really care about the poor? Or conservatives really pro-life? You know, like, not that he cared yeah. about the poor. Uh, and then Jesus... Immediately judging his motivation. Exactly. Jesus... Uh, but, you know, it's inspired, so I guess you're allowed to judge them. Uh, Jesus said, leave her alone, and... You know that she she bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You won't know, you'll have always the poor, but not always me. Yeah, you know this is really an interesting passage because, um, and this this is one of those unique occasions where you have some really cool parallels in in the synoptics in Matthew and in Mark. And it's not just that this passage exists, but it actually exists in the same type of way. It exists right kind of wrapped up with um, the plot to kill Jesus and the plot to kill Lazarus and the triumphal entry. And it's just one of those cool places where John intersects pretty cleanly with those other synoptics. And of course, the famous line in Matthew, and I um, can't recall if it shows up in Mark, but certainly in Matthew, it, when Jesus Jesus is uh, quote here is a little bit extended and it's the in memory of her passage. You know, when people refer to this moment, they'll talk, they'll do so in memory of her. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you know, you alluded to this, but you know, people will look at this passage and say, see, we don't have to do everything for the poor because the poor will always be here. And that's, you know, the, the, the problem with that is, a number, is on a number of levels, but one is this passage isn't about that. I mean, you know, it, it's about Mary and, um, and what's really intriguing to me is Mary's role here. She she takes on a prophetic role. I mean, and it's the second s- time, right, where Mary and going to yes. the feet of Jesus. Where it's not that the poor themselves or anything. Like that. It's almost like whatever thing, whatever like temporal concern, whatever thing you want to use to block God out, right? I mean, Schleiermacher calls sin God forgetfulness, right? Whatever thing, like, and <laughs> even something as noble as the poor, you can you can sort of use it as a way to shut out. Uh, the the beauty of God, as you can use wealth to do that, or a conservative agenda, oh, or a liberal yeah. agenda, or art, or education, anything, right? Religion, anything can be used to sort of sit, to to ignore the immediate presence of God and and what that means in the moment. Yeah, and you know, the, I think the the synoptic passages um, do a good job emphasizing this that there really is. I mean, this is one of the, again one of those very unsettling moments where. It really does emphasize the supremacy of of the presence of Jesus. Um, you know, I was reading this and I was reminded of a moment when I was 
I was attending a conference at Princeton a few years ago, and Will Willimon was there speaking to a room full of pastors. And um, you know, those who know Will Willimon know that he likes to. He, he's got his toolbox of provocative things that he likes to repeat from time to time. But one of them was. He looked at this room of pastors and says, you know, y'all's problem is you care more about people than you do Jesus, <laughs> which is such a great line. But I think this is kind of, this is one of those passages where you had to really wrestle with that, is that there is some symbolic prophetic thing going on here, but there's also just the point that Jesus makes, which is, I am here, and this this is important. And maybe we don't like that uh, line from Jesus. Maybe that strikes us as... Um, egotistical or something of that nature. Um, but that's exactly what's going on here. And it's just a good reminder that you know, the gospel makes over and over again, that there is this supreme value of the person of Christ being being present. There's a great line um, in the, the commentary on this from uh, J. Martin Scott, which is in, the, it's in that big one volume commentary that, that James Dunn did a few years ago. And I love this, this, way, this description of it. He says, the, with true Johannine irony, the one who has been given new life, Lazarus, witnesses the seal of death being set on his life giver by his own sister. Equally so in her self-giving, potentially humiliating uh, action, she is pointing forward to the, to the marker of discipleship, which Jesus himself will indicate around the table with his followers in chapter 13. So there, there's this really interesting shift that it, it, it's a hinge moment around the presence of Jesus where Lazarus, who had been raised, is now kind of passing the baton to Mary, who points to his to his death and to her own discipleship and to her prophetic role. So, um, spending a little more time on this uh, this week was really enlightening in that way. There, there's so much more to this passage than I initially encountered, but it definitely is another instance of realizing that the way we typically talk about this passage is not even close to what the passage is really about. So. It's good to look at it more closely. Yeah. The other interesting thing, I mean, Von Balthazar in a little an address he gave that's now ah, good it's old Von B. called To the Heart of the Mystery of Redemption says that there's these three Marys that, you know, and they all like he's talking about the sacrifice in the mass, right? And he's saying, What does that actually mean? What do we really we can't really sacrifice anything? You know, like and then he says he, he to understand what this means, he looks at the Marys and he says, you know, Mary in original form, she acquiesces to bear to be the god bearer and yet she's at the foot of the cross and she'd rather be tortured than the son and she has to give him and then she's caught she, he talks about mary here at bethany um uh mary the contemplative personam ecclesia gerens as the fathers say would thus be the one who in her total abandon acquiesces to the loss of what she loves more than anything like anointing the oil realizing that jesus with the anointing realizes that she's going to lose jesus right the writing's on the wall everybody's yeah. saying we're going to and then he says, Mary Magdalene, by contrast, the pardoned sinner, meets Jesus on Easter morning. And as he's in the process of rising, of going to his father, instinctively, she would like to cling to what she has sought in vain in the empty tomb, yet do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended, which means let me rise from the dead, consent to my disappearing, and turn toward my brothers in order to find me in them. And he says, the mystery of three Marys would thus consist, according to on Speyer, and giving ecclesial consent to the fundamental articulations of the Christ of an incarnation, passion, resurrection. Christ in his incarnation did not wish at any moment to act alone without the accompaniment of his church. Yeah, that's so good. Um, and yeah, I just, gosh, I, I love von Balthasar, and that's just one more reason to love von Balthasar. But yeah, just this whole idea that, you know, really in the Gospels, these Marys are the prophets. I mean, they they really are the, the they are the most consistent signposts, the most consistent pointers to Jesus. I know there's a few others, but that's a really great way to frame it. And of course, these Marys frame his life. I mean, you could almost say that, you know, Mary is the God bearer 
you know, the, the totus Christus, you have the kind of have a symbol of the church there and you have Mary Bethany, this very sacramental symbol. And then of course, um, Mary Magdalene with this, uh, this witness, this apostolic proclamation. Um, yeah. That, yeah. It's really interesting cool. with Mary's gift notes, notes something interesting because Lazarus was not resurrected. He was resuscitated. Yeah. Right. My wife's a nurse practitioner. She once resuscitated somebody that was 45 minutes yeah. dead. Right. Like, but they died again. And so did Lazarus. But, you know, Lazarus is there, but only Mary can give this prophetic priestly, this prophetic demonstration, this almost priestly gift. So, yeah, it is priestly. We not just be re- resuscitated, but live into resurrection life, which comes through the passion. Yeah. Especially the way it stands in contrast to Judas. I mean, you know, Matthew, Mark, and John all do that. I mean, that's clearly, there's the plot to kill Jesus. There's Judas, who, you know, we were laughing about in parentheses. says, by the way, this is the one that plotted to kill Jesus, in case you forgot. Um, but just to set Mary up in contrast to that is very telling, actually. And, you know, just one more example from the readings this week of, I'm just kind of, um, I, I'm just unsettled by uh, how these readings and the way they, they just, they basically are a reminder that God is going to be revealed how God wants to. God is the subject. Do not expect to have your narrative continued in the way you, you expect. And this is a great exclamation point to that with Mary is that this is not what you saw coming. This is not what you thought Jesus would say. And yet this is a primary signpost to his death. Yeah, resurrection, yeah exactly. If you try to put God in your pocket, the best you can ever hope for is resuscitation. But when God is let to be free, then we can have the possibility of real resurrection. Yeah. these pa- I mean, these passages are great levelers of the playing field. I mean, these passages will not tolerate um, theological agendas. And I love that. In the words of Austin Powers, there's only two things I can't stand, the intolerance and the Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is it? What is it in Blazing Saddles where they're like they're saying, "Okay, everybody can join us except the Irish." <laughs> yeah. Well, Adam, thanks for doing this with me yet again, and I'll talk to you well in real life soon, and also on the podcast again with our <laughs> listeners. Good enough. Thanks, thanks Scott. <laughs> thanks for listening to the Snacks podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating. Write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Adam for coming on the podcast and thanks to you for listening to Snaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.